Hello, folks, and welcome to the first Growing Point podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Boychin. Our goal with this podcast is simple, to provide Alberta farmers and agronomists with timely, relevant, and valuable agronomic knowledge through interviews with experts in various fields of agriculture. We're hoping that the agronomic information and conversations from this and future podcasts bring value to you and your farm. So in this episode, uh, I chat with Dr. Haley Catton. Uh, she's an insect researcher at Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. Um, she's leading the research in Alberta on wireworms. Um, so I, I was very much looking forward to having a discussion with her about this. Um, we cover a lot of details about the wireworm cycle, why it's becoming more of an issue in Western Canada and Alberta, uh, potential solutions that we are actually researching right now, and some interesting roles that beneficial insects may have in reducing its impact. Um, I had a great time chatting with her, and I hope you enjoy listening. Haley, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Jeremy, for having me. So today, obviously, I want to talk uh, about wireworms with you, um, but it... it You've been on the hunt for fields in southern Alberta with wireworm in it. How's that going for you? Yes, we are looking for 12 fields with different rotations to sample intensively this summer, and we've got them all, so we're ready to go. That, it, it's felt like at the beginning there you guys were going to, it was a bit of a fight to try and find fields. It seems like it was that, that way last year too. Yeah, it's because we're looking for really specific fields, right? They have to be a a field going into spring wheat in this year and they have to have a specific rotation in the last two years and it has to be dry land and it has to be close to Lethbridge so we're looking for very specific fields and that's why it takes some time sometimes. Have you started digging up any wire rooms yet? Are we that far along? We have not yet but I know they're out there right now. Um, the reason we haven't is our students don't start till next week so uh, ideally we'd like to get out there before seeding but people are seeding earlier and earlier now so we can't get our crews together in time. Uh, to get out there Makes as soon it. as we'd like to. Maybe let's take a step back um, and can you can you give us a breakdown of what your research is actually looking at and, and um, what you guys are hoping to find out and, and what the function of the research is? Sure. So we're going into year three of uh, the Wireworm Project for Alberta here and that's co-funded by Alberta Wheat Commission and Western Grains Research Foundation. And this is a project where we're looking at uh, sampling wheat fields with different rotation histories to test if we can detect a difference in wireworm population structure based on the past history of canola versus cereals or pulses in those crops. Because uh, we know that wireworms has a long-term life cycle so they may live, you know, three to five to seven or maybe longer years in the soil. So the wireworms you have today in your soil, if you're a producer, uh, are probably several years old, which means that they were their eggs were laid in the crop several years ago. So we're looking, kind of we're like looking into the past, basically, by sampling um, fields today. So, so that's so one of our objectives, um, for, sorry, for the project. Uh, another one is, you know, to study insects, you need to get them in the lab alive or dead and uh, we're comparing different ways of doing that so we have several different trap types that we're comparing uh, for their efficacy in catching click beetles which is the adult stage and also beneficial insects and what we call bycatch which is stuff we don't want to catch so we're comparing different traps uh, we are 
also looking into some really cool stuff where we <clears throat> look at the DNA content of the bellies of beneficial predaceous insects to detect if, if we if they've eaten wireworm recently. So if we empty their stomach contents and we find wireworm DNA, then we know those predators are eating wireworms in the field. And finally, for the project, uh, we are producing a field guide for wireworm in Alberta, and we expect that to come out next year. So there's a, there's a lot going on in this project. So it, it sounds like you're trying to um, understand whether there's a rotational effect to where these populations of wireworm are, are found? Yeah, so what we're finding is wireworm is very patchy. Like Some fields have so many, and other fields, even if producers... Um, uh, perceive that they have a wireworm problem, we're not finding wireworms. So we're finding it very patchy, and we're like, what is it about those fields uh, where the wireworms are? Like, what, what's going on there? And I think it's probably where the female beetles decide to lay their eggs, right? Those eggs hatch, and they become a wireworm population in the field for several years. So I should probably describe the wireworm life cycle, just so everybody knows. Uh, the adult form of wireworm is a beetle, actually. So we're not talking about a true worm, we're talking about a beetle. And uh, the beetle's called a click beetle, and, and you may have seen these in the field. They're kind of small and bullet-shaped, and if you turn them over on their backs, they click and flip over. That's click beetle. And in Alberta, there are, I was just looking this up, there are over 100 species in Alberta, 144 species of click beetles in Alberta. Jeez. 108. 108 species in Saskatchewan and 109 in Manitoba. Are and most pretty... of those are just wild beetles that are just doing their thing that we don't even really know about. So are they pretty distinctive of each other or would you would you be able would you not be able to tell them apart? Oh, you can tell them apart based on very small um, what we call morphological characteristics, so basically their shape or what they look like. So there are keys to tell these things apart. Anyway, so I was just talking about the adult part of the life cycle. So those beetles will wake up in the spring and they'll mate and the females will find locations to lay her eggs. And when she lays her eggs, say in a crop, for example, this is about June, uh, those eggs will hatch and then the wireworms will go down into the soil. And, and the first year that they're alive, we call them neonates. So they're quite tiny, like only several, several millimeters long. And then they will overwinter in the soil for multiple years and and grow and grow and keep eating crop roots uh, for, like I said, three to five to seven or maybe more years. And then finally, when, when a wireworm gets to a big enough size, it'll go through metamorphosis, so it'll build itself kind of like a little cocoon, sort of, anyway, in the soil and develop into a click beetle and emerge that following spring. <clears throat> so they're only adults for a couple months, actually, and the rest of their life cycle, almost all of it, they're larvae in the soil. So that's the life cycle for wireworms. Yeah, it's it's it, it, and from what I understand, the life cycle in terms of, of its schedule, um, moving from a, a neonate to to an adult, um, is not very strict in that they can they can be flexible in how long that takes for them to get to an adult. Yeah, yeah, they can. It, it depends on the, um, how much food they have, right? If if they like the crops that you're planting, for example, they'll eat a lot more and. Uh, mature faster, but they can take a whole year off feeding if they want to. They can, you know, dig down into the soil and just chill out for a year. So it's, it's very flexible. And also, I should say, when we're talking about wireworm, there are multiple species of, of wireworm pests. 
So remember I, I mentioned that Alberta has 144 species of click beetles. Most of those are not pests at all, but say five, five main species are pests. And we don't know a lot of the differences about uh, the differences of their life cycles. But we know that when farmers have fields that they consider to have a wireworm problem and you go and sample, you, you'll find one species or two or three or four or five in the same field. Is so there, that's something we're investigating. Is there certain species that are typically more of an issue than others? Yeah, we think the two main species or problem species are one of them is a big beefy one that I call, well, the Latin name is Philatosomus aeropinus destructor, but you can call it destructor just for short. And it could be say, an inch long when it's quite a large larva. <clears throat> and we think those are quite destructive, at least that's what the literature says. And then there's another species called Hypnoidus bicolor, where the mature larvae are, are maybe half an inch long. And they're quite a bit smaller when they're mature larvae, but there's more of them. So those are our top two species of pests, and lots of times you'll find them both in the same field, and we don't know how they interact or which one of those two species is causing what types of damage. So there's, there's lots of... It's like a tangled web that we, we need to untangle uh, to determine what the best ways are to try to suppress these populations and control the damage. But until we get an idea of, of what fields they prefer and why they prefer them, it, it's kind of hard to get a jump start on them. Yeah, I mean, if you can stop the female from laying her eggs in a field, then that's, you know, three to seven years of wireworm problem that you don't have now. Are so we, we're trying to figure out her preferences or intercept her somehow. Are we thinking that they prefer to to lay it lay their eggs in a in a certain crop? Is there is there any research or indication showing that they prefer certain crops or certain crops hold them back? Yeah, that's one of the big gaps that, in knowledge, right? That that we don't know. So we are actually looking into that in this project as well, where we're <clears throat> uh, after harvest, we're sampling canola stubble and wheat stubble, and we're looking for neonate wireworms. So if we can find, say, more neonates, remember those are the brand new ones, and wheat versus canola stubble, then we'll know that those females are laying eggs in wheat over canola. So that's one way of like looking at their host preferences. And uh, there are experiments we have planned. They're hard to do, though, but where we have uh, adult click beetles and we release them in kind of an enclosure with several crops to choose from, and we see where she lays her eggs. Uh, but we're not doing those this year. We're, we're thinking about maybe doing them in the future. It's just a matter of how do you contain the beetles? <laughs> you know, how do you stop her from just leaving? Right. So uh, the logistics of it is is harder than you would imagine. More difficult, I would say. Yeah, and to create a, a almost a real life scenario for that beetle, in that they would act how they would normally act in a, in a normal yeah. environment. Um, there's obviously some limitations around that and some challenges. Yeah, it's a very simple question, right? But it's difficult to implement. So but we're scheming and <laughs> we're looking into how we can do it. Wireworm wasn't, wasn't always an issue or it wasn't as, as prevalent of an issue until recently. What, what, what's changed? Right, so on the prairies here are, are three to five main pest species are all native species so they have uh, adapted to grasslands over you know last thousands of years since the glaciation period and uh, they they were pests as soon as people started growing crops here on the prairies and then uh, with the advent of pesticides uh, you know 
quite toxic pesticides, I might add. Uh, the wireworms were under control until about 2004 when lindane uh, was deregistered. So that was the last chemical available that would actually kill the wireworms in a field and control populations for years. Now, without lindane, uh, the next available treatment that came out on the market was neonicotinoid seed treatments. And uh, research out of BC, out of Wim Van Herk and Bob Vernon at Egg Canada in BC, uh, they've discovered that the neonics don't kill the wireworms. They just kind of intoxicate them for several weeks. So you can get a crop established, but those wireworms aren't dead. So that means they're there waiting um, for next year. So, so that's that's why wireworms resurged in the last, I guess, about 15 years is, is because uh, the chemical control available is not effective. So those populations are just continuing to go up then? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they'd stabilize at some point, but it would probably be a point that's too high to be acceptable for producers. All right, guys, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. Do you yearn for the days of flower power, tie-dye shirts, and bell-bottoms? Channel your free spirit and join the Alberta Wheat Commission for Wheatstock. One day of peace and wheat. Located in the open fields of TP Creek on August 8th, hear from agronomy and research headliners including Jennifer Otani, Dean Spanner, and Kelly Turkington. The first 50 registrations will receive a pair of our famous wheat socks. For more information and to register, go to albertawheat.com. Peace, love, and wheat. So in, in terms of distribution and movement of wireworm, and it, it, maybe it comes down to how far um, that that female is laying their eggs and how far they're moving from that original field that they were born from, um, is, that, is that a large area that they're traveling or are they only traveling maybe a, a few hundred meters? Um, like if, I'm, if my neighbor has issues, how quickly is it going to be my issue as well? Or, you know, if I'm seeing issues in southern Alberta and I'm closer to, to High River or, or Calgary area, can I expect them to move that far? That's a really good question, and off the top of my head, I don't know. I mean, click beetles can fly, so uh, we're talking several hundred meters at least. But because we don't know how the females make their decisions, you know, we don't know if, I don't know, maybe they don't like the slope of the neighbor's field, for example. So maybe they don't, they'll never have a problem. Uh, <laughs> so it's hard to know. Right. Without, without knowing their desires, it's hard to get an idea of, of how far they will fly for what they're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. And lots of times insects don't disperse if they have everything they need right in their home field. Like why leave, right? It's sometimes it's, they have to be too crowded. So if it gets too crowded and they get uncomfortable, then some of them will leave. But we really don't know what the situation is with click beetles. So kind of maybe going into the idea of, of, of how far distributed this issue is in Western Canada, you're kind of working with Wim Van Herk out of BC. Is he, He's doing a survey on um, what the distribution of wireworms are in Western Canada? Yeah, Wim Van Herk is our was one of our wireworm experts. He's fantastic. And he worked with Rob, uh, Bob Vernon, who's recently retired. <clears throat> and they've been doing, uh, I think for at least 10 years now, they've been doing a, a survey of wireworm species across the prairies just to see what's out there, right? So they were having people send them adult click beetles or, or larvae, just send them in, send it, send it to them, tell them where you got it exactly and, and the date. And so they've developed a map of where different species are found. And from that, we know that <clears throat> the species we're dealing with here in the prairies are, are native ones, uh, which is 
a key point is that's different than what you hear about wireworms in BC or out in the Atlantic provinces. Like Prince Edward Island has a huge wireworm problem. Uh, but in BC and PEI, those wireworms are invasive from Europe. So they're uh, more aggressive than the ones we have here. So yeah, Wim and Bob Vernon have made massive contributions to our knowledge about wireworms and just native click beetles uh, across the prairies and the country. So with that with that survey, do we have an idea where the highest risk is in Alberta? Is it distributed all across Alberta and Western Canada? Or are there certain areas that we just don't see wireworm issues? Maybe producers shouldn't be shouldn't be as concerned and maybe where are the areas that producers should be concerned? Well that's a really good question. And I would say their survey is great for saying what species are found where, but not abundance. Because it's not a formalized sampling procedure, uh, they don't, you know, we can't say how how common they are in any one region. So I, I guess one of the real big missing pieces with wireworm is that we don't have data on how severe the problem is, where, uh, and what the economic losses even are. So wireworms can be anywhere, basically. And we know that in Alberta, especially southern Alberta, seems to be a problem, but I've heard problems up, heard of problems up in the Peace region uh, pockets in Saskatchewan, a little bit of Manitoba, not not as much it seems. But I mean, lots of that's just word of mouth. We don't we don't have any standardized sampling. It's really hard to do. Yeah, it sounds like it sounds like there's a a lot of a lot of unanswered questions with uh, with these guys. Is yeah, because you're dealing with a pest that's in the soil, eh? And, and because soil is hard to access, and these things can go up and down in the soil as the year goes on or as the soil gets too dry or too hot, you never know if when you're sampling if you're actually going to get them. Like, they may actually be there, but a little bit too deep for you to get. Like, we can only sample, mass sample for this project that I'm working on, we can only go 10 centimeters deep. Because when we do the math on how <laughs> how much the soil weighs, and, and you know, we take 2,000 soil cores, if I wanted to do another five centimeters more deep, which I did want to do, uh, my technician crunches the numbers and he's like, uh, that's another 1.5 tons of soil that the students are going to have to carry. <laughs> so, so we're a little, we're limited. So sampling for these guys are, is actually really difficult. Yeah, especially if they can go a meter plus deep. And, and I'd imagine they're getting closer to the soil surface once things warm up and once CO2 starts to get pushed out from those seeds germinating. But um, yeah. there's there's probably still a large likelihood that there's a lot that are being missed. Yeah, so what we're looking at in this project is we're sampling every week here in Alberta. And by the time we get all the data and we'll know exactly when we should be sampling, like in future years, probably right down to the week. So, so that's going to be something good. Um, I, I kind of wanted to jump to the the DNA content um, and sure. and what what insects you're you're testing this with, and hopefully what information we can pull from it and, and how it may be beneficial in the future. Right. So what we're doing is is called uh, predator gut content DNA analysis. <clears throat> so looking for wireworm DNA in the bellies of predators, and to get this going, which it hasn't been done for wireworms before. Ever, as far as we know. Uh, to get this going, we have to get some real basics set up. So we have to develop what's called a DNA primer, which is a, a piece of DNA that allows us to detect click beetle DNA. It's almost like a... Like a... A mugshot? Like if you're in a work... 
kind of like a mugshot, yeah. Or maybe a fingerprint is a better word. A fingerprint for the, for the wireworm DNA that we need. So this first year of, of doing the DNA stuff, that's what it's all about, is developing that fingerprint so that we know that it's reliable and detectable for the species. We're going to do Salatosomus destructor, so that's the, the big beefy wireworm, and Hypnoidus bicolor, which is that little one, but the common small one. So we're trying to differentiate those two species uh, through DNA. So to do that, we've had to collect about a thousand predators, predator click beetle, or sorry, predator ground beetles in the lab, and we feed them wireworms. And uh, when we freeze them off, a different number of hours after they've been fed, and then by that, by that kind of experiment, we can determine like their digestion rate and the t detection rates that we can get in the field. So right now, I would say we're just kind of in the development and calibration stage, and hopefully this summer, we will be at the stage where we can go out and collect beetles from the field and see if they've eaten wireworms or not. So if we get an idea of what insects, or if insects are feeding on these wireworms, how long they've been feeding on them for, um, this would be able to help us manage those beneficial insects in the future so they could provide some protection? Is that is that the goal? That's the goal, yeah. It's... Determining the food web in the field is really complicated, but we know beneficial insects are beneficial, right? But what are they doing? And, you know, if someone's got a wireworm problem and we find out these ground beetles can help, then there's all that more reason for them not to maybe spray for some other pest that's not a big problem, for example, or to create habitats for these ground beetles to help, help them thrive. Like, uh, for example, not mowing flowery weeds on, on field edges. That, that helps the beneficials. That was kind of my next question is, is do we know a lot about some of these um, beneficial ground beetles? Do we, do we know about their life cycle to, to try and provide a better um, environment for them? We know some. We know some. There's been a lot of work in Europe on something called beetle banks, which is basically like little hills or, or unmowed areas in fields that's habitat for these beetles. Say if it gets too hot, they have some shade to go in, right? or they have somewhere to hide. So we know that, that uh, Europeans have been onto this for a long time, but their fields are smaller than ours. So we're, we're dealing with a bit of a different system here. Uh, anyway, we know some that we think we can promote uh, ground beetle habitat. Yeah. Might be giving... Uh, might be important. Right. <clears throat> uh, there's a study, uh, should be close to being done, I guess, out of Canada and Saskatchewan looking at the effects of uh, shelter belts on all kinds of biodiversity, including ground beetles. So uh, that could be really important for management. All right, everyone. We're going to commercial quickly, but we will be right back. Looking to lower your grain conditioning costs and increase efficiencies? A study by Team Alberta estimated that in 2018, the cost of fuel used for grain drying in Alberta was between 35 to $45 million. Team Alberta is seeking farmers that are interested in participating in a three-year study on grain conditioning systems. Volunteer today to be a part of the solution to lowering grain drying costs and increasing efficiencies in Alberta. For more information or to volunteer, you can call Shannon Sarita at 403-219-6263 or visit our commission website. Team Alberta is a collaboration between Alberta Barley, Alberta Canola, Alberta Pulse Growers, and the Alberta Wheat Commission to advance policy issues that impact Alberta's crop sector with all levels of government. 
Yeah, there's there's certainly it's certainly a research direction that's that's gaining traction. Um, what benefits come from some of these uh, environmental buffer areas outside of our fields, um, and maybe yeah. if we should invite be inviting more of those um, buffer areas into our growing regions, because um, I'd imagine a lot of them were cut back and cut out for production, um, but they may be they may have provided more value than we knew at that point. Yeah, yeah, we just need data on that, right? So I think that's going to be coming with that project that I mentioned out of Saskatchewan. So you were also in the direction of, of starting to do more research on beneficials in Western Canada. Yes, it's a real big passion of mine, definitely. What? So when we say beneficial insects, we're talking predators that could eat pests, like wireworm, for example, or cutworms or whatever, whatever your pest is. And we're also talking parasitoids which are usually little tiny wasps that will lay their eggs inside of pests like cutworms and eat them from the inside out. So a lot of these beneficials are kind of invisible to the untrained eye. Some of them are really tiny or they're active at night. So we think that their value may be underappreciated. And whenever whenever a producer, uh, say, sprays to control a pest, for example, those beneficials are going to get wiped out as well. So uh, what I'm starting a new project on is to determine determine what we know about beneficials on the prairies and and what our biggest knowledge gaps are for determining economic value of these of these the unpaid army as as I've heard people call it. I like that. Yeah, yeah, because they are doing all this work. You know, they're they're providing lots of value, but you know, sometimes we don't know what we've lost until. Until it's gone, right? Do we know of any beneficials right now that are providing value for cereal, oilseed, or, or pulse crops in Alberta or Western Canada? Is there is there any that we have a good grasp on at this point? Oh, sure. Like the um, parasitoid for wheat midge, for example, Macroglenes penetrans. There has been an economic analysis saying that in the 90s it provided, uh, I think it was like $260 million worth of value just in uh, reduced pesticide use alone. So people didn't have to spray for wheat midge on fields because the parasitoid uh, kept some of those fields under threshold value. So there's that one. Uh, we also think T. julis, which is a parasitoid for cereal leaf beetle. We, we think that is controlling the cereal leaf beetle population totally here on the prairies. Whenever we go to try to sample cereal leaf beetles, we get uh, 30 to 90% of those larvae are parasitized, which means they're going to die. Wow. So some pretty pretty darn good control, you know, and if you spray for a pest and wipe out the beneficials, then other pests may rebound because their predators aren't there anymore. So we think it's quite a complicated web that are, needs to be also untangled. <laughs> are there any pests right now or any, any beneficials right now that um, are being impacted by our management practices when we're spraying, like... If, if, if we're spraying early in the season, are, are we impacting any of these beneficials or are we still um, unsure of, of what kind of impact we're having on them? Well, we don't have any data on that, but we suspect just based on observation that yes, definitely. Uh, for example, some parasitoids will emerge the following year after the crop. So um, a parasitoid for wheat stem sawfly will emerge out of the wheat stubble. So maybe next year you have canola planted in that wheat stubble and you're spraying for cabbage seed pod weevil. If that's happening at the same time as the 
sawfly parasitoids are coming out, then you're wiping out the sawfly par- parasitoids that were going to fly over to your next field and control sawfly. So we have to think multiple years. Uh, and we have to get to know when these parasitoids are active so that we can tell producers, hey, watch your stubble in June. Uh, don't spray if you don't have to because your wheat midge par- or your sawfly parasitoids are coming out. So we think there is a lot of hidden value there that I think needs to come to light so that people can make more informed decisions on how they want to control pests. Well, if we can if we can reduce our impact on beneficials and reduce the amount of costs of, of spraying pesticides, um, I think there's there's a lot of value there for sure. I I wanted to maybe come back and, and tie back to, to some of this wireworm um, to some of these wireworm thoughts. Um, right now, some of our main controls, or are pretty much only our main controls, come from seed treatment. Um, are yeah. there are there any other methods that have maybe proven potentially beneficial to reduce the impact of of wireworms in crops? There, there are people looking at all kinds of different things to do. Uh, so, as I mentioned, the wireworm life cycle there, there's a few opportunities to kind of intercept the females from laying eggs or maybe even adults from mating. So, um, the wireworms that are out east and out west have pheromones, which is like insect perfume, um, and those can be used to monitor click beetle populations. So, it'll attract males, and uh, then you can tell exactly when the beetles are active. We don't have that for our prairie species yet, but uh, I'm involved in a project that's uh, looking at developing those for the prairies. So that could be one way of controlling them, is just trying to intercept or disturb the adult stage of their life cycle. Uh, Another way to target them is to try to kill wireworms once they're in the soil. And there's research out of BC that I'm also involved with uh, looking at potential biological controls, so uh, fungal controls. And, uh, I mean, BC crop production systems are different than us here in the prairies, right? Like our fields are bigger, different soil types and all that. Uh, But we are looking at at potentially trying to apply that to the prairies as well. So would that be uh, like a liquid application in the fields or what would that look like? I'm not sure just yet. (laughs) So that's a stay tuned. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of questions around that. Oh, yeah, for sure. If I'm a producer in, in Alberta um, and I'm concerned there might be wireworm issues, um, what what's my first approach for going to scout? Am I, am I scouting specific areas? Um, am I looking in certain areas of my field that might be more prone? Um, or do I just have to keep an eye out everywhere? Yeah, I would say the best way to scout is, is look for gaps in in uh, germination, basically. So when plants are seedlings, especially cereals, that seems to be their favorite crop, although they'll eat pulses as well, and everything, actually. Look for dead patches in the field, and then dig around the edge of those patches where there's uh, live plants, and see if you can see any fresh wireworm chewing damage or wireworms themselves. There are other reasons why there might be gaps in the field, uh, for example, like uh, uh, like herbicide damage or something like that. So you really want to be able to find the wireworms to know that you have a wireworm problem. Wireworms going to look kind of similar to cutworm. Do they do they have a different feeding pattern? Um, is there ways to recognize one over the other? Oh, to me, the insects look very different, right? There's all kinds of different cutworms too, but they're all caterpillars, like squishy, you know. 
sometimes fuzzy, even a little bit. Uh, wireworms are usually yellow, yellowish, and kind of hard-bodied, like they have segments on them. So uh, they're, to me, they look very different, hopefully to uh, someone who's not an entomologist, they could be able to tell those differences too. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm more um, wondering about the, the actual feeding, what it, looks on, what it looks like on the plant. Is there, is there a different feeding pattern on the plant of, of how it looks? Like, are they feeding more on the roots? And then what do those, do they, are they actually eating the whole seed? What does that actually look like? If I'm, if I'm pulling up a plant, what am I looking for that's distinctive of, of, a, of, a, wire, of a wireworm? Oh, that's a really good question, and, and we've done some greenhouse experiments just to see what their damage looks like, and sometimes they do cut the whole plant, like a cutworm would. Sometimes they eat up the seed, sometimes there's just big bite marks, like cookie monster bite marks on the side of the stem, so I'm not sure what's characteristic of wireworm compared to cutworm just yet, but hopefully we'd be able to find out, even to the species level, um, what kind of damage they do. Like some of the old literature from the 20s and 30s say that some of the species are tunnelers of wireworm. Some are tunnelers, some are shredders, but we are looking into that. We, I, I can't, I don't have enough knowledge for that question just yet. More research. More research, yep. <laughs> it's very basic questions, and that's what really fascinates me, is that very common sense questions like where do they lay their eggs and what does their damage look like? You know, we don't have the science for that just yet. As a producer, if I'm finding, this year I'm finding wireworm in my field, and it's a cereal in my field, and, and the following year um, I'm, I'm going to canola. Should I be as concerned going into canola? We don't know. <laughs> I, we don't think so, but that's based on anecdotal evidence. I mean, this project that I'm working on now will hopefully produce more, more data on that. Uh, but in terms of of a yes or no, I, we don't know yet. But but once that field goes back to the rotation of another cereal, um, we definitely want to be protecting ourselves with a seed treatment of some sort, um, uh, a neonic. Well, whatever's available. I've heard that there are new products that are close to coming out on the market. I don't know a lot about them, but uh, the chemical companies are saying that they'll kill wireworms. And if that... If that happens, that will be uh, a huge relief to a lot of producers. Uh, it doesn't mean we need to stop studying wireworms, though, right? Um, but, but I think people would be a lot more comforted if they were actually killing these insects instead of just putting them to sleep for a little while. Well, I, based on the how much research you can find in certain periods of time when you look back, it looks like once Lindane kind of came out on the market, the amount of research and the understanding of the the life cycle and, and biology of wireworm decreased quite significantly and, and now we're we're back in this in this situation where wireworm's an issue and, and we don't know as much as we need to know about it. Um, so I agree with yeah. you. I think I think continuing the understanding of what that what that life cycle web looks like um, protects us into the future. Yeah, it was uh, in the 1940s, right, when the organophosphates and organochlorines came along. Um, you know, wireworm research was dropped, and which, which, you know, at the time, looking back, it makes sense, right? As agricultural researchers, we, we follow the priorities of producers. You know, what is their biggest problem? And if something's being controlled, then I, I don't blame researchers for moving on to the next biggest problem, you know? But uh, we need to have a holistic approach now of, okay, what, what is our enemy? What are, like a private investigator, right? Like what are the tendencies of your enemy and where are their Achilles heels and where are they vulnerable? And what's their name? <laughs> so 
you got to know your enemy when you work with uh, agricultural pests. Well, it, it sounds like exciting research, and I'm glad you took the time to chat with me today about it, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to pull some valuable information from this. So, um, again, thank you for taking the time, Haley, uh, and I look forward to the next time we chat. Oh, I really appreciate it, Jeremy. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you for listening to the first Growing Point podcast. Um, Any of the key topics and points that Haley and I discussed will be outlined in the show notes, so so be sure to check those out. Um, Make sure to subscribe to our podcast because our next episode, I will be chatting with Dr. Sherry Strykhorse from Alberta Agriculture. Uh, I'll be chatting with her about her research in stacking agronomic traits in wheat and barley um, and plant growth regulators. So it should be an interesting conversation. I'm looking forward to it. Um, If you enjoyed the podcast, take a second to rate and review for us and share it with any of your friends. If you have any friends, if not, that's okay. We won't hold it against you. Um, this, uh, this helps us grow and, and really helps us get our message out. You can also sign up for our Growing Point newsletter by going to albertawheat or albertabarley.com um, and sign up for the mailing list. So thanks again, everyone, and we'll see you next time.